Have you ever seen someone in a new context, like in a, in a unique spot that you haven't seen them before or in a bad moment, and they just are not the same person, you know, that you, that you thought you knew? Um, you too understanding of that person. They just don't line up with each other. Or maybe it's, it's someone that you've seen in person and then you see their social media presence and there's something that's different there as well. It's like sometimes when we are in different situations, uh, things happen and, and cir- circumstances come up and if someone catches us in the wrong moment, we can, we can be a different person than we normally are. Something that I've been, I feel like I've been learning over the past couple of years is that people are not just one thing right? There are multiple facets and sides to people, and, and we're having a harder and harder time understanding that in today's world, right? We're having a harder time understanding that in today's culture. We see uh, one action from a person or hear about one event in a person's life, and we can immediately judge everything about that person based on that one thing. But human beings have always been multifaceted, and we continue to be that way. We have ups, we have downs, we have sides of us that we are still working on. This series is called Yes, You. And the reality is, in light, even in light of those challenges and those different facets and our strengths and our weaknesses and our bad moments and our good moments, God chooses to, he's willing to, and he desires to use us in his mission to reach the world. God desires to use you and me to reach the world. He, he desires to use us to accomplish his purposes. And today we're going to look at three different scenes in the life of David. Now, as I was preparing this message, I was realizing I'm biting off more than I can chew, okay? So strap in, we'll be here till 2 p.m. No, the reality is I'm going to wait until you forget this message in like eight months or so, and then we're going to do a David series. That's what's going to happen, all right? Because this is really good stuff, and uh, we could spend a lot of time on David in and of himself and in his own Uh, in his life. So we're going to look at three different scenes through his life. The first one comes really the front end of his story. Um, And and essentially what's going on here is in the history of Israel, they had no king for a very long time. And, um, and, And then all of a sudden the people were calling out, crying out for a king. Their king was supposed to be God right? Um, But they decided we want a king like all of the other nations around us. We want to have a king just like them. So we want to look look like these other nations. They kind of got jealous of what they saw other people experiencing and they decided they wanted that for themselves. And there was a prophet who was really functioning as the the voice of God to the people. He was going between and, and, and representing the people to God and God to the people. His name was Samuel. And Samuel, uh, he, he was upset about the fact that after a while, that first king that God chose, Saul, first he was upset that they chose a king and kind of rejected God, and Samuel felt like it was a rejection of him. God's like, Samuel, this is a rejection of me, not a rejection of you. And so he was dealing with that. And then Saul came onto the scene. He was the first king. He, was, he looked the part. He was big, giant guy, right? He was attractive people. He was a head taller than everyone else in all of Israel. And they looked at him, and they're like, yeah, that's a king. He looks like a king. He, he represents the idea of what I think of when I, when I hear king. That's, that's what Saul was. But internally, he was, he was cowardly. He, was, he, was not, he wouldn't take a stand. He wasn't bold. He wasn't strong. He had some weaknesses of character. And so God ultimately rejected Saul as king. And Samuel mourned over that as well. And God said, Samuel, stop mourning. I need to send you to this place. You're going to Bethlehem. You're going to find this guy, Jesse. And one of his sons is going to become the next king. And so he goes to Bethlehem, and uh, he tells the people of that town, he says, consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And he invites Jesse and his sons. And then it says he consecrated Jesse and his sons, and he invited them 
to the sacrifice. So he went through this process of making them ceremonially clean so they could come before the Lord. They were going to offer a sacrifice. And then he knew, and it's not clear whether or not he told Jesse in this moment the purpose of this meeting. It's not even clear that Jesse's aware of what happens as it all plays out. But the reality he's saying, I'm inviting you and your sons to this important meeting. Make sure you bring your family. Now, the interesting thing that happens here is as, as you read through that, the rest of that story in, in 1 Samuel 16, all of Jesse's sons are there except for one. One is not present. The one who's not present is named David. He's not there. He didn't get invited to this really important meeting for some reason or another. And we don't know, to be fair, we don't know exactly why he didn't get invited. It might have been out of necessity. Maybe he just wasn't around that day. Whatever the case may be. But there's a pattern that we see begin to emerge. It happens again at our second scene, which is going to be David versus Goliath, where David is sort of looked down upon by his family, by his brothers in particular, where he's talked down to, where he's sort of cast aside and dismissed. He's never really given a fair shot throughout the course of his life. He's not, he's not really thought much of. He's, he's criticized a lot. And again, we don't know if that's not why he's at this meeting, but we do see that as a pattern through his life. And it really kind of makes sense that they, to gather these, these sons and that to dismiss David, it really falls in line with the rest of what's going on. So just like last week, I'm going to ask us a series of questions from David's life as we think about the calling, yes, you, God wants to use you. Uh, what's holding you back from receiving that call? The first question I want, to ask, I want us to ask ourselves is, am I, am I allowing critics to define me? Am I allowing critics to define me? Am I allowing people who underestimate me to define me? Am I living into some of the things I've heard about myself or some of the ways that I've failed in the past that come back up? Am I allowing those, those moments of criticism to define me? Criticisms can be positive, right? We can learn from being criticized. We can get a lot of good things. And sometimes we criticize ourselves to an unhealthy point. And actually, we looked at Moses last week. That was really his problem. It wasn't somebody else telling Moses that he was too weak or not good enough or whatever. He was his own worst critic, and it paralyzed him, even in the direct call of God on his life. Being his own critic paralyzed him in those moments. And so sometimes that critic can be me. It can be a voice inside of ourselves. But sometimes it's someone else. Once again, on the other side, we need to listen to criticism and learn about it, but we can't let it define us. Because there's two ways to take in things that happen in our world. When we fail and when we're criticized and when people say stuff about us, there's a couple ways to respond. We, we can either treat those moments as a learning opportunity, a growth opportunity to better ourselves and to send us in the right direction, or Sometimes, sadly, we allow those things to define us and get us stuck. They end up being the things that get us stuck in life as we walk through it. Uh, Timothy Keller, a uh, retired pastor from New York City, said, if someone is criticizing you and the criticism is mostly mistaken, identify the 20% of the indictment that is fair. Without excuse, be willing to take it to heart. As Christians, we should be the ones most willing to repent. A lot of times we're not. When we're criticized, we go on the attack, right? Because it touches a nerve because maybe we're afraid that that's going to define us or maybe it's already defined us and someone's calling that thing out in us. But instead of responding that way, we need to learn from those moments and then walk in growth through that. Picking it up in verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and he thought, 
Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So Samuel sees the oldest of Jesse's sons, and he goes, there he is. There's our next king. But he was, he was using the old playbook, right? Because he remembers that Saul was the first king. Saul was humongous. He was, you know, he looked the part, all of that. He's a head taller than everyone. Here's he's staying before he lied. That's the same type of profile. He's like, this is the profile of the king. So th- here's our next king. Here's our next king. But one of the things that we see, and it's really the heart of this series, is that God likes to take that, that kind of worldly playbook and crumple it up and say, no, this is, how I, this is how I roll. I don't go by how everyone else judges people. I don't, I don't use the same system for that. In fact, we just sung about name another king like this, right? Jesus came. People didn't recognize him because they're looking for a Saul. They're looking for someone who stands out who's attractive, who, who's strong and, and exerts his will on other people. Instead, he came as a suffering servant. He came to lay his life down. He came to serve, not to be served. He came to give up his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come to exert his will as a king like Saul or, or Eliab may have been. So when Samuel sees Eliab, even though he's the Lord's prophet, he's close to God, he thinks, oh, there's, there's our next king. Here's what it says in verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. Verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, the next son. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. So he had Shammah pass by, the Lord, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. So here's the question. Am I more concerned about my appearance or my heart? Right? Ironically, David ends up being handsome, right? But he doesn't look the part of a king. There's something about that. And God says, look, I don't look at the outward thing. I look at the, I look at the heart. I look at what's going on inside. I have a whole different system for evaluating these things. Am I concerned more about my appearance or about my heart? When it comes to walking the faith journey, when, we, when we're more concerned about our outward appearance than our heart, where it actually is, that's a really dangerous territory. And historically, it's one that people have fallen and walked down over and over and over again. Where we, be, we make this whole thing about a performance. Where we think that somehow we can impress other people or even impress God with the way that we live for him. And it's all externals. It's all outside. Instead, God says, you know what, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the impact, the thing that, the action that you think will have the most impact. Worry about giving me your heart and doing what I ask you to do, and I will take care of the results. That's how God works in us, and that's how he works through us. He wants us to to give him our hearts, not to worry about our appearance. Now, sometimes we come across uh, people who don't care at all about their appearance, and I have a a couple of them in my house right now. Um, The younger they are, the less they care about their appearance. And um, my my three-year-old, she's about to turn four, Eliza, if you would have come by our house yesterday, you would have seen her running around outside in her pajamas, which, by the way, they were falling down a lot, um, and rain boots. 
Her hair was all over the place, and she had chocolate, just like, it looked like a beard, like just smeared all over her face. And, we're, you know, we're just constantly like, Liza, go, go clean up your, ah, whatever, you know? And like at, at a certain point now, it's like, we don't care about her appearance. It's just like, whatever. Um, at one point, I turned around, and she had just decided to shed the, the bottom half of her pajamas. And so she had the rain boots and just underwear. It was too cold for that to begin with. And plus, that's not appropriate, so we had to make her go change. Uh, but that's, she just doesn't care. She does not care one bit about what people think about her. The only thing that Eliza cares about is whether or not something in her estimation is boring or not. That's her biggest insult right now. If we ask her to do something, she's like, no, that's boring. And it doesn't really usually apply to the situation, but that's where she's at in life. So it's all good. Um, Look, the lesson we can learn from her is not to care about her appearance. I don't know about the boring part. That doesn't really tie in so well. Uh, but it's about the heart. It's not about the appearance. And, and earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, this is what God said to Samuel about Saul and what, he, what his plan was moving forward. This was relating to Saul and his, king, and his kingship and what God was going to do with that. 1 Samuel 13, 14 says, But now your kingdom will not endure. Referring to Saul, The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. When he refers to David before David's been revealed, he calls him a man after God's own heart. That's what the Lord wants from us, is to be people who are after his heart, not people who look the part, people who are pursuing the heart of God. The heart is vital. Proverbs calls the heart the wellspring of life, and therefore we need to guard it above all things. The heart is vital. <laughs> not, not physically. Physically, our heart is vital, but it's that spiritual aspect, the wellspring of life. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah, referring to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. I'm using strong words. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want our external actions. He doesn't want just our words. He doesn't want our, our sacrifices on the outside. He wants our hearts. Amen. So we see that from this calling of David, this anointing scene of David. So when David shows up, Samuel anoints him, says, you're going to be the next king of Israel. And he, he doesn't take effect just yet at that moment, but he's been anointed. And so the spirit comes on him in power. We start to see him do all sorts of things in his life. Scene two is the one we've all heard of, Right? The David and Goliath scene. You might like see a game where one, uh, a sporting event where one team is the underdog and they call it, it's David versus Goliath, you know, and you're like, you're always rooting on the underdog and it really comes back to this, this type of storyline right here. It's sort of the quintessential underdog story. Uh, basically what's going on here is Israel is lined up against their main rival, the Philistines. They are lined up in battle formation across from each other and each day, they're not fighting, it's sort of like, you know, they're, they're in that pre-fighting stage, they're smack-talking. And uh, Goliath will come out into the middle of the field, and he's just this giant of a man. And he says, send me your champion. Let's settle this just with a one-on-one. And whoever wins is going to, you know, this one-on-one battle will win the whole thing. It's like a winner-take-all type of challenge. And so David is once again, just like he was when, he was when the anointing is about to happen, he's off tending the sheep. That's where he is. He's not at the battle line. He's off tending the sheep. But his father, Jesse, sends him to bring essentially lunch to his brothers, a few of them who are at the battle line. And so he brings it, and he, when he comes, Goliath comes out and starts defying the Israelites and the God of the Israelites. And he witnesses this. He hears this. 
and he experiences this challenge, this call, uh, and, and this calling out from, of Goliath toward, um, toward the Israelites. And he sees that no one's stepping up. So he's like, I'm going to step up. I'm going to step into this. It's during this whole scene that his brother's like, what are you even doing here? You're here to promote yourself and blah, blah, blah. And they're, they're clearly acting out of some kind of jealousy or envy. We don't know exactly what's behind that, but he's just getting put down again and criticized again. Uh, but he steps up. And as he steps up, it, it, David said to Saul, he says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. For your servant, me, I will go in and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You were only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. He's an experienced fighter. He's giant. You're this, like a little kid. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not ready for this. And then Samuel tells him about all of his challenges when he's been out in the wilderness with the sheep, how different predators have come along, and he's taken out the, the bear and the lion, all these different things. And he says this, he concludes it with this, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. I love how the contrast between Moses and David, you know, you want to find a balance. There's got to be humility. But David is like, I'm going to step in to this calling. So the question is, am I confidently following God's calling in my life? Am I confidently following God's calling in my life? This can be hard. This can be hard for us, right? Uh, we were talking this morning, uh, next weekend, we're going to be doing some child dedications, and we were talking about the calling of, of being parents, and that, that's something that's a really clear calling because all of a sudden there's a kid in front of you. Now you know you're called to be a parent, right? That, that's, what that, that's what that means, uh, to be called into, into that. You might be called to something at work. You look around, you're like, man, I'm in a place where the gospel could take root, where people need to know Jesus. You're called. You're called to that setting. You can be called to something in your family to play a role or in your neighborhood. There, there are ways that we're called into things by our circumstances in life, in addition to special calling of God. And are we confidently walking into those places? David did not have the hesitation that we saw with, with Moses, even without that same level of assurance where God was speaking to Moses through a bush that was on fire and saying, I will be with you. Perform these miracles by accident. I'm doing them. I will be with you. And he calls Moses, but he won't step. David is like, I, I, there's a Philistine out there. No one's stepping up. I'm going to step up. And he says, because I'm here right now and I'm hearing what I'm hearing and he's defying God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the one who says, no, you can't defy the God of the, of the universe. And he steps up. He steps into that calling. He felt that God would use him, so he went for it. Now, most of the risks that we're holding back on do not involve life or death. We don't have to fight a literal giant to the death in order to, uh, to step into the risk that God is calling us to take. And so I would just say, I mean, the lesson for us is like, look, if, if David can take this risk being like, I think God's going to pull through. Like, I wonder what, if we asked him, like, how sure were you where you were going to survive that? He may not have said 100%. Maybe he would have. Maybe God like whispered something to him that isn't recorded in the text. But I think he's kind of like, I'm taking this risk. And I'm going to say, God is going to have my back on this. And sometimes we walk into situations and we're like, I think God might want me to do that, but I'm not positive. And what happens if I fail or, or if they respond negatively to me or I lose a friend or, you know, like what happens if it doesn't work out? Um, I mean, my challenge is take, take, the, take the risk. Take the risk. You know, step into that situation and take the risk. You never know what God will do with it. He'll probably stretch you. He'll probably use it in somebody else's life as well. So as David gets ready to go up against the giant, verse 38, it says, Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him, 
and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. So he's like, picture like a smaller person wearing this bigger guy's clothes because remember, Saul was this huge person and he towered over everybody. And David's a young man, right? He puts on all this armor. He can hardly move around. It's like, he goes, I cannot go in these because I'm not used to them. And so he took them off. He took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag with a sling in his hand and he approached the Philistine. <laughs> pretty bold, pretty bold. But the other thing he's doing here is he's refusing to just mimic somebody else right? He knows at this point, at least there's some questions on the chronology of this part of the account, if this is a flashback, but if we read it according to how it's written, he's, he likely knows that he's the next king, right? And the previous king is like, hey, you're going to go into this battle, wear my stuff. It's like, I can't, I can't wear your stuff. But our temptation sometime when we're called into something, and even for me, this is like a pretty, pretty real deal for me, right? Um, the question is, am I embracing who God made me to be. That's the question that we're asking ourselves here at this point. Am I embracing who God made me to be? As a speaker and as a pastor, I like to listen to other people, right? Because for one, I come to church on Sunday and nobody talks to me, right? Uh, God talks to me all week and he, uses, he does great work in my life um, through preparation in his word. But I also like to hear somebody else speak uh, every now and again. And so I try to listen to podcasts and listen to different people. I have a variety of different speakers that I listen to. Some people I agree with in this area, but not in that area. And other people in different places. And it's, it's not that it's a, it's a, you know, I listen to someone because I believe everything that they say. But I want to be challenged and I want to be pushed and I want to be growing as well. And sometimes as I'm listening to someone, because I usually pick pretty good speakers, you know, and a lot of times I've heard of them and I've seen them at a conference or whatever, and it can be easy to be like, oh, yeah, I could, I could tell that story just like that. Oh, I, that, that was really good. I, I, I could preach a message just like this. And I start to think about how, how, how can I take their style and apply it in my setting? And then I realized, look, I'm, I'm not them. One of the people I'm listening to recently is an Australian. And I've spent a few years growing up in Australia, and sadly, I did not keep the accent, right? And sometimes I'm like, man, I wish I would have kept the accent because, like, it sounds pretty cool when he says it, you know? But it's like, you got to take off the armor, mate. It's just not fitting you. Like, it's just not me. It's not who I am. If I came up here and gave a message with an Australian accent, you'd be like, what is he doing? It's contrived. Like, I've got to be me. I've got to step into my calling, right? And we all need to do that. Sometimes we look at the person before us or at somebody else who's done it really well. And we need to be careful not to step into it the same way they did. God wired you the way that you are for a reason. Let him use you. Let him use your gifts. Let him use your makeup. Let him use the way that he made you. Now, we also need to be careful when we say that not to justify sin because that's who I am, right? We, we still root that stuff out, but we can't try to wear someone else's armor. Amen. We're going to move on to scene three. You guys know the rest of that, that story with Goliath, right? He slings the stone. He takes him down. Um, there's some other gruesome things that happen. And uh, David, David wins the great battle on behalf of the Lord. 2 Samuel, we're going to move ahead to 2 Samuel, verse 11. This is another famous story of David. This is his great fall. It says this in chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained 
in Jerusalem. This first verse of the chapter makes it really clear. You're supposed to pick up on something here, right? What you're supposed to be picking up on, if you, maybe you see it, you're supposed to be picking up on the fact that David's not where he's supposed to be. Like the main job for a king is to lead the army in and out of the city, to lead the army into battle. And we don't know exactly why. Maybe he's lazy. Maybe he's not feeling up to it. Maybe he feels like, oh, we're, we're experiencing a lot of success and winning all of our battles. And he's like, I'm going to stay home this time. You know, I'm going to stay back. And he's not where he's supposed to be. Because it says, when the kings go off to war. It's the time when the kings go off to war. And then it says, but David, he sent Joab, and then he remained. He remained in Jerusalem. A lot of big mistakes that happen in our lives follow smaller mistakes. They come out of smaller mistakes that take place. And mistakes tend to pile up one on top of the other. This whole scene is set by David not being where he's supposed to be. And there's probably something even behind that that's more internal for why David's not where he's supposed to be that lines up this whole thing. And it, it, begins, it begins to pile up. It begins to pile up. Verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed. He walked around on the roof of the palace, and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful. If you know the story, her name is Bathsheba. has nothing to do, as far as I know, with her having taken a bath, all right? Uh, but that just happens to be her name, so we can un- remember it. Um, and in God's providence. But he ends up getting her pregnant, right? She had, she had zero say in the matter. She, her husband and all the men of Jerusalem are off to war, and the king calls her to his palace. She ends up becoming pregnant. So David's like, oh, man, my mistake is catching up to me. I got an idea. I know her husband. We're good pals, right? Let me call him back from the war. I'll get like a report of how things are going, and I'll send him home, right? He's been away for a while. This will take care of itself. And so he does that. He brings in Uriah, and he's like, oh, how are things going? Pretty well? Awesome. Hey, go see your wife. He's like, oh, no, I couldn't do that. I couldn't sin against my king. I couldn't sin against my brother, the Israelites, to go and spend the night with my wife while they're out camping and in war. Like, I just couldn't. I can't wrap my mind around that. It feels disloyal. I'm just not going to do that. And so David tries some strategies. He even tries to get him drunk and send him home. So his decision-making is off. It doesn't work. The guy will not do it. He will not, um, he will not uh, do it. In his mind is betraying his brothers in war. And so David goes with a backup plan. He's like, if I can't cover it up in the simple way, I'll do it the difficult way. He sends a letter with Uriah to take back with orders to push the line up, the, 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 you know, push the, the front lines up, have Uriah in the front lines, and then draw the troops back and leave Uriah high and dry in the midst of the battle and have him killed. And that's exactly what ends up happening. He murders Uriah. He ranges for his death at war. And he marries Bathsheba. Probably looked like a good guy. He's like, oh, he's got a widow, you know? Who's going to take care of her? Who better than me, right? And so he marries this woman and brings, brings her into his household, thinking that he got away with it. Now, it didn't all happen at once, right? David did just suddenly wake up one day and say, I'm going to commit murder. It happened with some small mistakes that led to the big mistake. It was a drift. The question is, am I letting my focus 
drift? Am I letting my focus drift in any area of life? Because when God says, yes, you, if our focus drifts, we're not going to step into all that he's calling us to. We need to keep our focus on, on him and on walking with him in our lives. Uh, this is not the Australian speaker I was thinking of, but I did recently hear Christine Kane um, share a story because she grew up in Australia, um, as did I. And what she talked about really resonated with me because I don't know if you've ever been to a day on the beach near the ocean. Have you, ever, have you ever been there before? Like been in the ocean, been swimming, and like you've got, you know, your family is maybe uh, camped out or the people you're with are camped out on the beach and you're out in the water and you're jumping around in the waves. You might get this in a, in a windy day in the Great Lakes. It might happen like this. Um, and you're out there and all of a sudden you're like, wait, where'd they go? Do they pack up and leave me in the ocean? You know, and you're looking around on the beach for where your people are. Where are they? They're just down the shore a little bit, right? Because they haven't moved but you have. And when you're in the water and when you're in the waves and you're playing around out there, like you, you don't realize that you're being pushed in one way or the other by the wind and the currents and all of that. It just sort of happens to you. And all of a sudden you look up and you're like way down the, the beach from somebody else. And that's why you have to be really careful because there's, there's all these, this, this pull that's on you when you're out in the water. And uh, you can be pulled away from it. And you think they're moving, but it's really, it's you. It's you that's being moved. And the question that Christine Kane asked that I thought was just really insightful is what do you need to do in order to drift? Nothing. Nothing. You don't have to do anything. It just happens to you as you're out in the water. It, it occurs. You actually have to be intentional about not drifting, right? It, what do you have to do to drift? You have to do nothing. You just have to take your focus off of what matters the most. And that happens to us in so many different areas of life. Sometimes our pursuits Sometimes it's material things. Sometimes it's relationships, right? Sometimes it, it can be all sorts of things that come into our lives that we end up taking our focus off of God, putting our focus on something else. And before we know it, we've drifted. We've drifted and we're off of our purpose. And when we drift, we can get ourselves into big trouble just like David did with Bathsheba. So Samuel comes to David and he tells him this like story. It's like, kind of like a parable. He tells him this story, but he tells it as if it's real, um, about this man, this poor man who had a lamb that was basically, he treated it like a pet. And he's got this lamb, he loves it. He says, the lamb eats from his dish. Like, they're, they're close, right? And then he, he, there's a rich man who shows up, and uh, the rich man wants to eat some lamb, and instead of grabbing from one of his many sheep, he takes the poor man's lamb, and he slaughters it and eats it. And David is just infuriated by this. It says he burns with anger. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, it says, David burned with anger against this hypothetical man he didn't know was hypothetical. And he said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. One time when uh, I was leading a Bible study in college, we were reading through this, we were studying this passage right here, and somebody was reading it, and the next line says uh, that Nathan turns to David and says, you are the man. And the person read it, and he read it like this. He read it like, uh, you're the man, like that. And David, that's not how Nathan said it to David. He's like, you are the man from the story. So whenever I read it, I always read it that other way. Uh, but David is the man who is stealing this one lamb, even though he has all these riches. And Nathan just comes at him. 
He just comes at him. And how does David respond? He says, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. There's an artist named Angelica Kaufman. She was one of two females who were, uh, started the, the uh, I can't know, the name is escaping me, but in London there's that artist cooperation back in the 1700s, and she was one of the two founding female members. And she uh, painted this picture on this scene. She painted a picture on this scene. And you see just like the, the, the stance of Nathan, just like, it's you. You're that man. And David's like, I've been caught. And he was, you can see that posture of like repentance. There's a depth here to David's response. Obviously, the actions that led up to this does not reflect a person who is a man after God's own heart, right? But his response when confronted with his sin, it does. It points to a person who's after God's heart. We're not one thing. People are not one thing. And we make mistakes. David made some huge mistakes. I mean, if we, if we had this happen, if somebody came up and shared their testimony and said the stuff that David just did, would be like, whoa, do we have to call the police? You know? David repented, right? He repented. His heart demonstrates he was a man after God's own heart. And he wrote a psalm after this event. He wrote a psalm. And we're going we're to close with, with this psalm that David wrote in repentance. Psalm 51. The header of this psalm exists in the Hebrew. Sometimes the, the, the headers in, in your Bible as you're reading through, and, and like for example, in Psalm 17, it says David and Goliath. Like that line that says David and Goliath, and that's going to be the that's, that was added. That's not, that was not in the original text. But in the Psalms, those little descriptions at the top, those, are, those were there in the original Hebrew. And here's what it says. It says, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Here's what he says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me, my, me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back. Deliver me from the blood of, or guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O oh God, will not despise. The last question is, am I defining myself by my mistakes? 
We've made mistakes, right? We've messed up. When we let those things define us, those mistakes continue to define us. When we define ourselves by our mistakes, we start getting in that pattern that David found himself in for a minute, where he was covering up one mistake after another, where he was letting small mistakes lead to big mistakes. And sin has that way of doing that in our lives. When we don't fully repent, like he did in Psalm 51. When we don't repent, when we hide them, when we keep our sin in the dark, has a tendency to take over. There was a camp speaker when I was a youth pastor named Brett Ray who would, he would give this message every so often. I heard it several times over the years. Um, and he would talk about sin. He would say, sin blinds you, sin binds you, and sin always finds you. It blinds you because you, you don't realize that you're sinning on top of sin to, to get to a certain place. You don't even realize that what you've done is wrong. It blinds you. And it binds you because now you're stuck in this cycle. And in order to cover up your sin, you have to sin again, right? And it always finds you because it comes back. It circles back around. It has a way of of having a destructive power when we let it grow in the dark. Sometimes we maintain pet sins on purpose. We're deliberately hiding them so we can continue in them. Sometimes it's shame that causes us to hide away. But God says, shine a light on that. Because until until you do, you will not find that freedom that you need. So who do you need to tell? Who do you need to confess to today in order to stop defining yourself by your mistakes, to let that out into the open and into the light? Again, David made huge mistakes, but he was considered a man after God's own heart and did awesome things for God as well. But that heart element, it's in the reaction. It's not that you'll ever sin again, but it's in the reaction. Am I defining myself by my mistakes? Let's pray. God, thank you for what you teach us through David, a flawed man, a flawed individual, but someone who did great things for your name as well. Lord, we, like David, we're not one thing. We make mistakes, we sin, we wander, we drift. Sometimes we outright run, but Lord, thank you that you're a God who pursues Lord, thank you that you, when you look at us, you don't see our sin. You see your son and his perfection. Lord, help us to receive that call and to recognize that you are saying, yes, you. That's who I'm calling. I'm calling you. And you're calling each of us with all of our flaws, with all of our mistakes, with our history, with our past, with the ways that you've designed us. It's unique. You're calling us with all of that, Lord, in mind. Help us to seek you and seek to be used by you in our world. Lord, we love you. We trust you. And right now we declare that we need you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.